Well, good morning. good morning. I'm thankful to have this opportunity to open the Word of God with you once again. And I trust that you have come this morning with a desire to see wonderful things in the Word of God. And so with that desire in mind, let us go to the Lord and ask for His help in our time of need. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Christ. We do not come before your throne in our own merit or our our own worth, but we come because we trust in Christ and we know that you are satisfied with his righteousness. And if you are satisfied with your own son, then we know that you are satisfied with those who are united to him by faith. And so, Lord, we come to you now as your sons and your daughters with whom you are well pleased. And we ask of you, our Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. May we see in your word your glory as it is revealed in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see our need of him, as well as to see and believe that he is able and willing to save to the uttermost all that will cling to him by faith. And it is in his most precious and glorious name that we pray. Amen. Well, as it was stated last week, during our announcements, the format of our Bible study hour is going to be a little bit different over the next four weeks. The format that we will follow for the month of August is that I will try to preach a short sermon, and then following the sermon, we will have a time of discussion concerning the content of said sermon. And so you can ask questions, and I will receive your uh, questions, and I will defer to Pastor Thomas or John, and they can answer those questions. Um, But anyways, further, it was announced last week that the theme of this short sermon series will be the theme of our union with Christ. Pastor Burke Parsons writes, The believer's union with Christ has long been a neglected doctrine in many churches, yet it is a central doctrine in Scripture. When you read the epistles of Paul in the New Testament, You won't find him referring to the people of God as Christians, although there's nothing wrong with referring to the people of God as Christians. Instead, Paul most often employs a particular phrase or a variation thereof to describe the people of God. That phrase is, in Christ. And what we learn from the very theology of the Pauline epistles is that what it means to be a Christian is to be a man or woman who is in Christ. This central doctrine of Scripture so saturates the mind and heart of Paul that he explicitly refers to the doctrine of union with Christ at least 216 times in the Pauline epistles. Sinclair Ferguson stated the following with regards to Paul's focus on the doctrine of union with Christ. He says, this doctrine, it is on every page. It is either in every paragraph or under every paragraph. It is his, that is Paul's, absolutely fundamental way of describing what it means to be a Christian. So I hope we can see from the outset that this doctrine is absolutely critical and foundational to our understanding of Christianity. It is foundational to the very faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, if this doctrine of union with Christ is foundational to the very faith, the very message of the scriptures, then we should expect that this message concerning union with Christ would be present not just in the Pauline epistles, but rather we would find this doctrine permeating the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what we find. 
Well, this time, if you would, please turn to the very first book of the Bible to see how this doctrine of union with Christ finds its genesis. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, and let's read together verses 7 through 9. This is God's word. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, here we clearly see that God created the first man, Adam. And we know from previous revelation in chapter 1 that God created, created this man in his own image and gave him a mandate to exercise dominion over the earth as God's vice-regent. We then see that God places Adam in a garden, the Garden of Eden. If you will, let's notice now verses 15 through 17 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, or eat of it, you shall surely die. What we have just read in those verses has it really has far more significance than what first than what first meets the eye. You see, what we have just read, although it is subtle in its presentation, has both laid down the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind, and further, it has set the stage for the historical outworking of God's sovereign decree made before the foundation of the world. I'll state that again. What we have just read in Genesis chapter 2, first, it lays down the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind. Secondly, it sets the stage for the historical outworking of God's sovereign decree made before the foundation of the world. So first, what we see in these verses is the reality that God immediately interacts with Adam on the basis of a covenant arrangement. And for time's sake, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to mention several other verses. I'm just going to mention one other verse from the Old Testament that I think makes this undeniably clear. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, The prophet compares the disobedience of Israel to Adam. In doing so, he says the following, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so what we see here is that the Holy Spirit, through Holy Scripture, explicitly interprets this arrangement that we have just read of in Genesis 2 as a covenant. Some will try and argue that there is no covenant here. And they will use all sorts of arguments to make their case. But God is his best interpreter. And the omniscient Holy Spirit interprets this for us as a covenant arrangement between God and Adam. We must understand, along with our forefathers in the faith, that covenant is the divinely chosen vehicle through which contact and communication would be made with humanity. I'll say that again. Covenant is the divinely chosen vehicle through which contact and communication would be made with humanity. We don't see God and Adam having a history of fellowship and communion and interaction 
only to be followed in time by God making a covenant with Adam. No, right from the very start, God imposes the stipulations of a covenant on Adam. Dr. Jim Renahan has written the following concerning why this is so. He states, The necessity of covenant is rooted in the the creator-creature distinction. Our confession of faith makes this point in the following way in chapter 7, paragraph 1. It says, The distance between God and the creature is so great, and there's your creator-creature distinction, that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by which way? By way of covenant. And so the first thing I want you to understand about this divinely ordered covenant arrangement between God and Adam is that this covenant arrangement was a result of God's voluntary condescension and that the intention of this covenant arrangement was for the ultimate good of mankind. Mankind is obligated to obey God on the very basis of being created by God. This is man's reasonable service to his creator. But as Renahan goes on to point out, natural obedience, that is, obedience to God because he's your creator, natural obedience is not meritorious. Obedience is required for rational creatures, but it does not in and of itself, even in an unfallen state which Adam was in, merit a reward. It is simply the obligation of the created being whose purpose is to serve the creator. In other words, Adam was required to be obedient to God simply because he was a rational creature who owed obedience unto his, unto his creator. But apart from a divinely imposed covenant arrangement, Adam's obedience would have never led to any reward. Now, what reward is promised in this covenant between God and Adam? The promised reward is not made explicitly clear for us in Genesis chapter 2. But on the basis of the rest of Scripture, we see that the promised reward for Adam's obedience to the stipulations of the covenant would have been life. And this life that was promised was not just a continuation of Adam's pre-fall condition, that condition being one in which Adam was always on the precipice of falling under the just wrath and condemnation of God. Again, Renahan writing about this promised reward of life states, this reward is not merely continued existence, but rather a confirmation of the high estate unto which God created man. You see, God's purpose in entering into this covenant with Adam was not to set up man in order to punish and destroy mankind. No, the purpose of this covenant was for man to enjoy life as a vice regent with God on this newly made earth and that the blessing of this life would remain forever. Now, of course, we know what happens in the next chapter of Genesis. Satan, in the form of a serpent, enters the garden and he tempts our first parents. And in Genesis 3.6, we read this sad account that Eve took the fruit from the forbidden tree and she ate. And then she gave some to her husband, Adam, and he ate, directly breaking the specific command of God. Now, what comes next in the biblical narrative will further build our understanding 
of this foundational principle by which God relates to mankind. What we see next is that as a result of Adam's sin, that Adam will be cursed. And, and that makes perfect sense, right? Adam sinned. God told Adam, if you, break, if you eat of this tree, you will be cursed. And Adam ate of the tree, and Adam was cursed. But interestingly enough, it's not just Adam that is cursed. But rather, this curse is applied to all mankind that would follow Adam. Our confession uses the language of the posterity of Adam being cursed along with Adam. It says in chapter 7, paragraph 2 of our confession, in describing the awful condition of mankind, that man, generally speaking, that is referring to all mankind, both Adam and all of his posterity, have brought themselves, plural, under the curse of the law, and law here is synonymous with the covenant of works, by his fall, by Adam's fall. Now that's very interesting language. What is it saying? Why is it talking about Adam's fall, his breaking of the covenant, as if it is my fall, as if it is my breaking of the covenant? Now, it's important to note here that this concept that Adam's posterity suffers the consequences of Adam's covenant breaking is not just a vague concept recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. Neither is it merely a theological formulation recorded in 17th century Reformed confessions. No, the New Testament's divinely inspired interpretation of Adam's covenant breaking and the consequences thereof is that Adam holds a very particular and special position. If you would turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll notice verses 12 through 21. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in that passage that we've just read, we see the following statements that describe Adam's position. 
It says, sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam. It says, many died through one man's trespass. It says, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, in the context, condemnation for all those whom Adam represented. It goes on to say, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Further, it says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then finally, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So those who are of Adam's posterity were made sinners on account of Adam's trespass. And so this passage, passage divinely interprets for us who Adam is. And it interprets for us the effect of his breaking of the covenant. And what it teaches us is this that Adam holds the position known in theology as that of a federal head. And what that means in basic terms is this. Adam is the representative of all mankind. Now, A.W. Pink, in the following quote, you should have this on the back of your handout. In the following quote, and it's a lengthy quote, and what he, what he does in this quote, he says that this, this doctrine of Adam's federal headship lays the foundational nature of our of our relationship to God. He said, It is of vital importance for a right understanding of much in God's word to observe the relation which Adam sustained to his posterity. Adam was not only the common parent of mankind, but he was also their federal head and representative. The whole human race was placed on probation or trial in Eden. Adam acted not for himself alone, but he transacted for all who were to spring from him. And then he goes on to say, unless this basic fact, this fact of Adam's federal headship, unless this basic fact be definitely apprehended, much that ought to be relatively clear to us will be shrouded in impenetrable, impenetrable mystery. Yea, we go further and affirm that until the federal headship of Adam and God's covenant with him in that office be actually perceived, we are without the key to God's dealings with the human race. We are unable to discern man's relation to the divine law, and we appreciate not the fundamental principles upon which the atonement of Christ proceeded. And so what we see in Adam's federal headship is this. It lays down the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind. We've already established that God relates to mankind on the basis of a covenant. And that if man is ever going to attain the reward of life, that God must condescend to man by way of covenant to make that possible. Well, God did this through Adam. God made a covenant with Adam, known in theology as the covenant of works, where he promised that if Adam met the conditions of the covenant that he would attain the reward promised in that covenant. But further, not only have we seen that God relates to humanity on the basis of covenant and that the great hope, the great goal of humanity which is being confirmed in a state of everlasting life with God and all the blessings which is wrapped up in that reality, but we have seen that God interacts with humanity not by making individual and separate covenants with every single person, but rather God makes the covenant with humanity through a federal head. So he made a covenant with Adam. That establishes that God interacts with humanity on the basis of a covenant. But he, does, he doesn't then turn around and make a, a separate covenant with every single human being. 
He makes a covenant with Adam who acts as a federal head and then he represents all of humanity. So we, as humans, we interact with God on the basis of a covenant but through the context of a federal head. And so what we have seen so far this morning is that God made a covenant whereby he promised everlasting life to all humanity upon the condition that Adam, who is the federal head of that covenant, render perfect obedience unto God. And once we have that understanding, once we have that foundational principle by, by which God relates to humanity, we then see how the failure of Adam sets the stage for the historical outworking of God's sovereign decree made before the foundation of the world. You see, brothers and sisters, it is this foundation that leads to the whole of the message of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation chapter 22. And what is the central focus of the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 moving forward? It is this. By virtue of your union with Adam in the covenant of works, you are born under a curse. And as a result of this curse, you are born with Adam's guilt. You are guilty before God. Secondly, you have Adam's corrupt nature conveyed to you. That is, you are born with a sinful nature. And because you are a sinner by nature, you are in bondage to sin. You are the servants of sin. And because you are enslaved to sin, you commit sin. And as a result of your sin, you are, as our confession puts it, the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. The Bible says this is your wretched condition as a result of the broken covenant of works. But the rest of the Bible isn't primarily about describing your wretched condition. It is about what God has done to address that very problem. You see, God, out of pure grace, made a second covenant. In this covenant, the same promise is laid before us as in the first covenant. The promise is to be confirmed in a state of eternal life with God. The difference is that the life promised therein will not be based, as our confession will state in chapter 19, paragraph 1, on personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, but rather on grace. It will be based on God through pure grace, giving the reward of eternal life to those who have broken the covenant of works. It is in this covenant of grace that God will provide a second Adam, a better Adam, who will be the federal head of this gracious covenant. And this federal head will be unique. This federal head will be the very son of God. And yet, this federal head will be the son of man. This federal head will be none other than the incarnate second person of the Trinity, which uniquely, uniquely qualifies him and him alone as the only one who can serve as the redeeming mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 states it explicitly. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. This, brothers and sisters, is why the doctrine of union with Christ is so essential. We are born, the Bible says, in Adam, in covenant union with Adam. And we are by nature of that union with Adam, cursed. And the end result of that curse is what? It is eternal death and that is our destiny unless as our confession in chapter 6 so beautifully puts it the Lord Jesus set you free 
Your only hope of escaping eternal death and being granted eternal life is to be transferred from being in union with Adam in the covenant of works to being in union with Christ in the covenant of grace. And there's only one way for that to happen, dear ones. That is, you must repent of your sins and you must place your faith in Christ Jesus. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, if you have, if you have believed upon Him, you will not perish, covenant of works, but rather you will have everlasting life, covenant of grace. And so I want to close with this from question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is why this is so important. And that should be on your handout as well. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only hope, or only comfort rather, in life and death? It answers it this way. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, my only comfort in life and death is that I be united to Christ by faith. It goes on to say that He has fully paid for all my sins, and this is, it details what union with Christ means and, and the blessings that flow from it, that He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Dear ones, this truly is your only comfort in life and death, that you would be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, dear ones, union with Him is not just a one-time thing that happens at the moment of your conversion. Jesus said that He is the true vine and that you must continually abide in Him. And so, dear ones, my plea to you today is this, that you would look to Christ, that you would abide in Him, that you would abide in His love, for apart from Him, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Holy Father, we have seen from Your Word that in Your most excellent wisdom you have so established it that the only way that you will relate to mankind is by way of covenant and we have seen that you made a a covenant with adam where you promised life but yet adam failed but lord in your great grace you did not leave us in that estate you made a second covenant you made a covenant of grace through your son jesus christ and you have promised that if anyone should come to Christ, they shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Holy Father, I do pray that your people this morning would be once again reminded and encouraged about the, the beauty and the sufficiency of being in union with Christ. That if they are united to him, that he is sufficient to save them to the uttermost. I pray that your people would worship you on account of this. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We should have a handout.